0: This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills.
1: Hello and welcome to another week of Sports Cutting Edge, all thanks to the Australian Sports Technologies Network, powering sport through innovation. You can check them out at astn.com.au. Huge show for you today, we've got one of the Cinderella stories of Australian sport, Colin Funky Miller, who completely reinvented himself to become an Australian Test cricketer at the age of 34. This is one of those stories that shows never give up hope, never give up on your dreams. And think outside the box. That's what Colin Miller did. We're going to talk about how he did it. The resilience, the discipline, uh, the ability to be able to, as we say, literally reinvent his game. He went from being a medium-paced bowler to an off-spin bowler for the sole purpose of making his dream of becoming a test cricketer come true. He did it. He made that dream come true. We'll find out how. As well as that, we'll talk about all the fun and frivolity he had, all the hairstyles, all the colors. Uh, Funky was one of those blokes who just made cricket so much fun. And now he's living in Las Vegas. So how appropriate is that? We're going to cross to Las Vegas very shortly and chat to Colin Miller. Also on the show, um, you know, so many of these are the great stories of the modern age of technology, the innovations, the creations that happened in a garage, in a back block somewhere. We've got one of those for you today. Nick Fredrickson from Timing Solutions timing solutions are the company that power Little Athletics in this country and also school sports. So, you know, Little Aths, of course, it's part of the folklore of Australian sport. Um, all the hardware, all the software for their timing comes from Timing Solutions. This company started in a garage in country Australia. We'll find out from Nick Fredrickson how they did it. Uh, we are also got, now this is nice too, I mean, you look at the The way that technology can actually help the environment and help with economic opportunity. We're going to speak to a young gun Aussie geologist, Pete Coleman. He and his wife, Kelly, have started a business that's an app. It's called ReShare. It's basically, it's like Airbnb, but for everything. For everything you might want to use. Indoor items, outdoor, household in the yard, etc. And specifically, we're going to talk about sporting equipment because, I mean, you know, you want to play cricket, that's going to cost a lot of money to buy all the stuff. Golf, ditto, even worse. Uh, Skiing, all these sports that require so much expenditure to buy all the gear. Well, how about if you could borrow it? Short term, you pay a fraction of the cash and you still get to enjoy the sport. So this is about giving more opportunity to people, uh, regardless of economic situation, As well as the economic sustainability, rather than go out and buy a thousand cricket bats, just share a hundred of them around, etc. So we ought to talk to Pete about that invention of his. Uh, As well as that, we're going to head over to the Netherlands and talk to the magnificent Europe correspondent of the show, Chelsea Disseldorp, all the latest global sports tech news Chelsea will have. And we've got Haley McAdam from 3 kd Indigenous Radio. This week, Haley is profiling Yvonne Goulagon Corley. That's all coming up. Up first, we're heading to Vegas with Colin Funky Miller. There's a great quote by the US golf champion of yesteryear, Ben Hogan, that says, with keenness and determination, there is nothing you can't accomplish. They're, they're nice words, but... When you see an actual example in real life of someone who pulls off something remarkable who makes their dreams come true against all odds the cinderella story of australian cricket really for the last 30 or 40 years has been that of colin miller it's extraordinary when you think about this 33 years old been playing first class cricket for 12 years And probably everyone in Australia in the cricket world thought time had passed him by. There's no chance he's ever going to make the Australian team. One person disagreed. That was Colin Miller. And through self-belief, determination and imagination, he got himself in the Australian team. And a couple of years later, crowned as the Australian Test Player of the Year. Making dreams come true. Colin Miller joins us on the show. G'day, Colin. Lucky, how are you, buddy? Mate, it's it's awesome to have you on. We'll, we'll get into that in a sec, but I want another key component to your story. Of course, your nickname, Funky. And this is one big part of it because there are people in, in sporting folklore that stand out off the page, that they, they do something special, that resonate, that captivate the public. And just to give an indicator of this, Adam Zampa, who's one of the best slow bowlers in short form cricket anywhere in the world, as a kid idolized Colin Miller. And I heard him say this story recently when he was eight years old, copying Colin Miller, dyed his hair red. Yeah, bright red, jumped in the swimming pool, chlorine got to it, went pink, mum shaved the head. So Adam Zampa, someone who's now dominating cricket, as a kid loved you. Because for those of uh, listening that are under the age of 25 or 30, have a look on YouTube. You'll see Funky Miller with bright blue hair, not just off to the side, on the cricket field. Blight blue, red, uh, the peroxide blonde. Funky, uh, it looks like you had a lot of fun playing cricket.
2: I did, I did. And I actually read that article that Adam Zappa. He was talking about that last week. I saw it over here. Uh, I try to wake up every morning and read the Australian press to see what's happening in the world because, you know, having lived over here for a few years, uh, there's nothing but American news over here. You don't get any modern news at all. Mm. So I read my Australian newspapers every day. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I loved playing cricket. Cricket was just something that I wanted to do from a very young age. Uh, my dad was a cricketer. He, he played he played a lot of good um, club-level cricket in Melbourne. Um, he was my first coach. My older brother was a was a fast bowler, um, who was a superstar fast bowler, probably the fastest bowler in Victoria. Um, he's four years older than me. Um, um, uh, it, my my grandfather on my on my mum's side uh, was a was a fantastic grade cricketer uh, in 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 Melbourne as well in the suburbs. So it was always inevitable that I was going to play cricket. Just um, at what level, I think every kid. Once you decide you want to play cricket, you decide you want to play for Australia as well. You hope you're going to play for Australia because that's why you play cricket, is to one day be on the MCG and and walk out there in front of 80,000
1: Victorians and Australian fans and and hopefully do well. Well, that's it. Uh, I I mean, it's extraordinary what what you did. So I want to, if we go back to 1997, you're about 33. You've been playing first-class cricket a long time, medium-place bowler, really smart player. And a really good, strong Sheffield Shield cricketer At that stage, of Sheffield Shield was, you know, as strong as international cricket is today sometimes. Um, an amazingly strong competition. You're playing really well, but there's just not an opportunity to get in the Australian side. And my understanding is you're over in Holland. You're playing some club cricket. And you decided to completely flip the script. Can you tell us what you did? Um, yeah, you're right. If you look back at the era that I was
2: bowling medium pace and medium fast, there was Australia had a plethora of fast bowlers. Mm. So you know, although I was having forty five wicket seasons in first class cricket in the Shield cricket, there was never going to be an opportunity for me to to play at the next level as a as a medium pace bowler. So I had to discover something else. Um, I knew I could bowl spin. My, my older brother Wayne uh, and I, as, as you do as brothers, spent our childhood in, in the nets, in the local cricket cricket ground and I was actually a better leg spin bowler when I was younger than I was an off-spin bowler Uh, and my brother was a fast bowler he always just tried to kill me all day long (laughs) and when I finally got a chance to bowl to him uh, I would bowl a bit of left arm, a bit of right arm, a bit of off-spin, a bit of leg spin Um, I'd just do a bit of everything and so the opportunity to bowl some spin in club cricket really first started in, in the UK Um, We would train two nights a week. I would do my fitness work in the gym the other three or four nights a week. Then I'd bowl all all day, Saturday and Sunday. So on Tuesday and Thursday, I'd bowl, spin the nets just to give my body a break. And Mm. it was something I enjoyed doing. I never got a chance to bowl it uh, while I was playing the leagues in England. But you're right, in 96 and 97 when I was playing in Holland, um, again, I would would go the nets in the morning on my own. Um, I'd roll out the mat on myself. We played on the old mats in those days in Holland. Is that right? Uh, I'd roll out a mat, stretch it out so it was tight, put it, put one stump in, and then put a marker about 25, 30 feet behind the stumps,
3: yeah. and that's
2: where I wanted my ball to end after I'd it. So that where I got my consistent pace through the air. Yeah. Um, if you know mats, they turn square. You put, it, put a bit of rip on the ball. So then you've got to learn to pitch it out in the right area to get back towards the stump. So. I spent probably almost two full seasons in, in Holland really honing the art in my mind of how to bowl off spin. Uh, and for me it was purely judging by how far the ball went past the stumps and by how far outside off he could get it to come back and hit the stumps. Um, and I bowled it in probably three or four games that second season in Holland. Um, with a bit of success, but you know, when when you're the pro athlete in the in the team, you're signed as a fast bowler, you really gotta commit to bowling, bowling fast. Um, so, when I had teams, if I had the first four or five biggest in innings, I'd, I'd bowl a couple of hours a spin. And then the next, that pre-season back in Australia, um, in Tassie, we were playing a few trial games before the season started, and I'd said to David Boone, you know, we need a bit of variety in our bowling attack. Mm-hmm. We had a fantastic medium-paced bowling attack, but we had, didn't have that variety And Hobart being a pretty flat track. Mm-hmm. Um, we were having trouble bowling themed out. Um, and I'd said to Babsie, I said, you know, I, I can do, I can ball, spin. You know, trust me, I can do it. Uh, I can be, a, I can open a bowling for you and I can come on second change and ball, spin. So I did it in a couple of pre-season games and I got David out once so I got a couple other guys out. Um, and really just, it went on from there. And what it did to us in Tasmania, it gave us 12 players on the field because instead of having just one, you know, three fast bowlers and maybe an all-rounder, we had three fast bowlers and an all-rounder and a spinner all of a sudden. And you yeah. still only got 11 players in the team. So there were games where I bowled 30 and 40 overs in, in a day. There's one day I bowled 50 overs in a day. Um, just because it just gave David as a captain that that flexibility to bowl me from either end or whatever style he wanted me to bowl.
1: Oh, I love it. The fact that you had the, the creative thinking to come up with it. You you had the dedication to hone the craft. Then the self-belief to actually go and tell David Boone, one of the greatest Australian criggers of all time, who was your captain in Tassie, said, look, this is what I want to do. Talking about self-belief. So here we, I've got this quote here, Peter Taylor, who was a selector at the time, you were sitting next to him and you said, mate, I'm gonna bowl spin next year. And I think I'm gonna be the best spinner in Australia. In my mind, I couldn't see myself not being successful. What you did the next season is become the most successful bowler in the history of Sheffield Shield Cricket. Sheffield Shield Cricket's been going for 800 years. You became the most successful bowler ever in a single season. Amazing. You broke a 60-year record of uh, Chuck Fleetwood-Smith. Uh, you took, I mean, 67 wickets in 11 games at an average of 24 bow and off spin, as you said, on flat tracks. And at that time, 97-98, you're bowling against Dean Jones. I mean, you're bowling against some bloody high-quality opposition. That's extraordinary. I mean, can you tell us about that role of self-belief? What was going on between the ears that actually allowed you to do what you did? So I'll
2: go back to the Peter Taylor story. And I was, I think I got dropped for a game. Uh, so I was uh, not even in the squad. And I, I'd known Peter for a couple of years, you know, playing against these guys and know he was a selector. And um, and I, so I just up next to him and said, we're just chatting about cricket. And... I'd watched Australia over the last, the previous three or four seasons, try out a couple of spinners, mm-hmm. um, and, and with, without a lot of great success. And I just saw there was a there's a gap there. Yeah, I just cool. and and I have, and it's not arrogance. Self belief is knowing in your own self that you can do something well. Um, sometimes it comes across as arrogance. And if you look at it, that's what I loved about good batsmen. They had a lot of self belief. And sometimes it came across as arrogance. And Dean Jones was always the best example of that. Just a fantastic fantastic athlete with great belief in his own ability. But people thought he was arrogant. No, he wasn't. He was just a really good cricketer. Mm.
1: Um,
2: So I knew that if I was given the opportunity to play for Australia at some stage, I would do well. That it had been as a medium pace bowler or as a spin bowler. I just knew deep down in my own heart um, that if I was given given that chance, um, I wouldn't let the team down. Uh, and I knew after 13 years of first-class cricket that I could do uh, any job that was asked of me. Um, one of the big benefits I had as a, as a spin bowler was um, I had great control um, yeah. right from ball one. I could put two bat pads in from ball one and know that they weren't going to get killed. Yeah. Um, my my captains in the Australian team, Mark Taylor and, and Stephen Ward, both knew that as well. So yeah. when they gave when they threw the ball to me, whether it was the new ball or the old ball, I they knew that straight away I was, going to, I was going to be on the mark and I could put pressure on the batsman. And I knew I could do that. And, and that season of the 67 wickets, and you can ask any athlete in the world, when you get in the zone, um, there's there's something that happens to you. And I honestly believe that every game I played, I was going to get 10 wickets. It was just, there was a three-month period. If you go back and look at those stats, I started that season off really slowly. And I, I think it was about the fourth or fifth game where I got up six or seven wickets. And then for the rest of the season, we just died, you know just dominated, but I just got into a groove and the ball just come out of your hand, like you're not even trying it's just, and it's turning and it's drifting and people are getting out and every, every ball you bowl, you feel like you got a chance and then that self-belief becomes a little bit of, wow, I, you know, I really can do this. And, and that relates to anything you do in life. I mean, I, 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 I love playing golf now and yeah. I've been down to a two handicapper. Um, i'm not there anymore but got out and play enough but but when i'm playing even now if i'm playing to a 10 handicap i still believe i can go around a six under i never have but i still believe i can because i I know that even that given the right opportunity given the right circumstances that one day is going to come for me
1: totally what about for people listening to this i mean because that's the thing we you know you look at instagram there's an inspirational quote every 30 seconds and, and and nice words are great But talking to people who have actually put those words into action and done it, that's what we've got with yourself here, what advice would you have for people that in whatever area of life, whether it's sport or anything, personal, business, when they're struggling with that self-belief, what advice would you have? How do you tap into it when when you're going no good?
2: So I had to learn that again when I moved to the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. When I retired from cricket, I went into a little bit of media, so a little bit of TV week. Mm -hmm. I did some stuff at ESPN over in Singapore. I was doing a little bit of radio and TV in Melbourne, writing for magazines and newspapers, doing corporate speaking, talking about myself and having a, lot of, a couple of funny stories. And then you moved to the US in 2008 and no one knows who you are. Okay. They got to find a new career. And luckily my wife's best friend was the CEO of a chair company. And they said, hey, we'll give, you, we'll give you a job. Do you want to work in security or do you want to work in
1: maintenance?
2: I know nothing about either of them, but how about I go for maintenance? Yeah, and I, even though I was kidding, the job was being created for me in the company, I still had to go for an interview with the director of we call engineering over here, was really maintenance. Yeah, and um, he, he, we sat down for the interview, and I really didn't know anything about how to change the light bulb, how to fix anything in the world. I didn't know anything, and he told me that the wage was twelve dollars an hour, and I'm like going, what every hour? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I go for forty hours a week. I worked out very quickly. That was a uh, $480 a week. I'm thinking, I can't live on that. I was come from $4,000 an hour as a corporate speaker. Yeah. Um, and after the first week, I, went, I came home to my wife and said, look, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I need to be in charge. So, over the next uh, just under two years, I taught myself how to fix everything in our house. While my wife was at work on Friday, I would tear the house apart. Yeah. I would tear the refrigerator, the oven, the microwave, the dishwasher, the washing machine, the dryer. And put it all back together, hopefully, before she got home. <laughs> and, and within the next 18 months, I was assistant director of, it, of engineering. Uh, and now I've been working in this field for almost 11 years now. Uh, I'm an assistant chief engineer at the Marriott Hotel in Las Vegas. And, and I'm, I, run, I run a team of 30 guys and girls that work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just made myself create a new career because I had to. Yeah. Now, I could have easily sat back and maybe took a job with Cricket America or maybe done something else. But, mm. you know, I was only 44 when I moved here. and You've got to do something in life and you can't just sit back and expect things to be given to you like they were in Australia. And yeah. when you play cricket for Australia, a lot of things are given to you. But when you're out on your own, you've got to do your own thing. Um, it was a really good learning experience for me. Mm. But getting back into being a manager and leading a team again is what I really enjoy so now I'm back in that team atmosphere and I get to help people and guide people.
1: That' fantastic. And you, I, I, I've been to Vegas a few times and, and your Marriott's Grand Chateau is just magnificent. I, I'm actually a Bonvoy member, so I've got to come and stay the Marriott's yeah. Grand Chateau. Vegas is a lot of fun. We might get to that a little bit shortly, but there's something interesting you really said there. and I Actually, I um, you won't remember this. I do. So in 1999, I was in grade five. I went to a, a cricket clinic. And the Aussie players are always fantastic. They'd go to the MCG and put on a clinic for the kids in the lead up to the boxing day test. You were there, you're in the Australian setup it's a you know a, an amazing time for you in life. you're in the Australian side, and all these kids are standing around and I don't know it must have been one of the dads or someone brought up the topic of luck someone brought up that topic they just said something about luck to you. And I don't know what the context was, but I still can vivid and all my life I have remembered these words you said because it just it just stuck with me and it's I've tried to embody it. you said you make your own luck in life, you know and it's such an empowering thing to rather than leave it up to fate or chance, you actually go and do it and obviously that's something you told me as an 11 year old kid stuck with me forever. Um, and it's something that whether you're talking about what you've done in Vegas or, you know, because a lot of athletes struggle. After the curtain goes yep. down, they struggle. You have been able to reinvent yourself there. But to even get yourself in the Australian team, you did it. So it just shows an iron will. Um, yeah. I, you don't remember that, Dave, but I, I wouldn't have imagined because there you be so no, many but, of those but I, but,
2: I, but I firmly believe in the old saying that you create your own luck. and uh. like. I listened to a, the Howard Stern show over here every morning on the way to work I and mean, then on the way home from work. And he was interviewing Ed Sheeran just hmm. two days ago. And everyone just thinks that Ed Sheeran is just a fantastic fantastic songwriter and musician who's making hundreds of millions of dollars. And it you know, just happened for him overnight. You know, he just got lucky. Hmm. Well, he, he made his first album when he was 11 years old. He got a record deal when he was 11 was no good. It was a terrible album. Even he admits it was a terrible album. Yeah. But over the next ten to eleven years he practiced and learned to write songs better and learn to sing better. And you know, it's it's that ten thousand hours of practice that all these people talk about, the ten thousand hours before you get good at anything, that's creating your own luck. Yeah. Yeah, no one gives you anything in life. This very there's very few athletes or business people or academics that have had their career given to them. Mm. They some of them like maybe LeBron James, but then he'll tell you that if you watch him, I follow him on social media. Mm. In the off season, he spends more time in the gym than probably half the other league spends yeah. in the gym. So it's not luck that he's the best player in the world. Mm. He's worked at it. But you're still going to make that luck. And people perceive it as <laughs> People perceive it as luck, but I, I perceive it these days more as it's a, a lot of very much hard work and dedication that gives you that perception that you've had a lot of luck in life.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And it's so funny hearing you say that because it just harks back to literally 23 years ago. I I want to talk to you about um, what it was like. So you have that magical summer, as you said, three months, you're just in the zone. At the end of that summer, was there a part where you actually got to, I don't know, you're sitting in the car or something at the set of traffic lights, you get to think, she was, I actually did it, you know, like because you had the belief, but then you did it. Is there a chance? Did you get a moment where you actually were able to sort of reflect or bask in it? Um, not probably not
2: for a couple of years. Mm. Um, because I got into the Australian team and there was a lot more test cricket being played back then. Um, mm. the tours were a lot longer, so you spent a lot more time of the year playing cricket. And back then, we played all the Australian players played shield cricket as well, and club cricket, yeah. Today, so you, you're busy, really. I had three and a half years of this being really, really busy playing cricket ten to eleven months a year. Yeah. Uh, then you had that six weeks off in the middle, of, you know, over Christmas sometimes. And so it wasn't really until um, probably at the end of my career in mm. two thousand one, two thousand two, where you get a chance to sit back and go, "Wow, that was a pretty good run." Yeah, <laughs> and then you get reminded by by your friends and then people people on social media. Um, I still get sent the video of me bowling with blue hair in Sydney. Someone sent it to me just the other day on Facebook. Hey, Colin, have you seen this before? I get that at least every two weeks. I get that sent me once. Um, I'll get the video of me hitting Kirtley for a couple of sixes in uh, Antigua a couple of times a year. Mm. So that sort of stuff, then you sit down and go, "Well, oh, yeah, I, I did. I, I really enjoyed that time. But while I was doing it, I was just so focused on wanting to be as good as I could be mm. for that period I was going to be in the team. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be contributing to Australia winning test matches. Mm. I wanted to do what I'd watched my heroes do while I was growing up. Mm. And that was to win games for Australia.
1: Well, you did that. You were part of arguably the greatest Australian team of all time, 16 in a row undefeated. I mean, Steve Waugh, Mark Waugh, Shane Waugh, Glenn McGrath, you know, Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer, Adam Gilchrist, Colin Miller, Brett Lee, uh, an amazing team. Um, what did it feel like in that setup? You're playing with some of the greatest players that are ever going to play cricket. What was it like walking into that dressing room? Debut in Pakistan, Rawalpindi. Last time we went to Pakistan, Mark Taylor three three four not out. What did it feel like? It must have been amazing. Uh, it was pretty cool.
2: Um, the big advantage, and I've said this before, was I've been playing first class cricket for twelve years. Mm. I knew everybody in the Australian team. Uh, we'd, we'd played against each other numerous times and had beers together and after the games and gone out together and had fun. and So me, it, I wasn't some 20 year old kid making his debut who played six mm-hmm. first class games uh, and mm-hmm. walking into a room full of veterans. I was walking into a room where I was one of the oldest guys in the, in the room um, <laughs> play, to play a game with guys i watched much grow up. Uh, like yeah. guys like Damian Martin and Justin Langer, who were young kids compared to me. And, <laughs> uh, and now I'm in the team with them and, yeah, you know, Matthew Hayden. I watched come through Shield cricket in Queensland. I played on day played debut game against him. Um, played against those guys for for years before I got to play for Australia. So hmm. the intimidation factor wasn't there for me. Yeah. Uh, all I wanted, all I wanted was to be given the opportunity to play. And and at 34, I, I in my own mind, I'm, I thought they would. They're not going to take me to Pakistan to sit on the bench. Hmm. They're going to take me to Pakistan to play. Um, so I was prepared mentally when I got there to, to play every Test match.
1: Jeez, how did it feel when you first walk out in the baggy green cap? What did it feel like? Pretty cool, yeah. Mark Taylor presented my baggy
2: green to me, so that was really nice. And then um, mm. uh, my this my first over, Bob was medium pace, and I think it was the fourth ball of my first over. I got Suleman Malik caught a second slip. Uh, who would who would have bet on that, eh? Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he might have known it was coming fourth. yeah ball a, you know, i'm telling you it
2: was, a, it was a, nearly a wide half volley that's what it was he had to reach the front hand and hit it so uh, mark taylor took a low catch to his war i think caught it low to his right hand side So yeah. that was pretty cool to get that one wicket out of the way. and then later in that in that uh series i um i bowled the ball that ian healy broke the Australian record with for wicket keeping yeah. catches um so that was a great memory as well and it, it's a, it was just good fun um I, I didn't make a fool of myself, except when was the was bowling to me. That was a bit embarrassing, but uh, the rest of it was pretty much fun, and I, I really enjoyed Pakistan. I'm so glad to read yesterday that the Australian team, they're going to go back there next year because mm-hmm. I, I was playing golf on the weekend. Uh, it's a little corporate day over here, and you know most of the guys, of the guys i play with know who I am in Australia, hmm. and one of the guys I hadn't met before was asking me about my Australian cricket career and you know yeah, knew that I travelled the world. And he said, where are your played Favorite places if we went to, and I always say Pakistan. Pakistan yeah. was one of my probably in my top five, and I've been around the world six or seven times. Yeah, um, I, I really, really enjoyed Pakistan. It was I thought it was a beautiful place. The people were magnificent when we were there. Yeah, um, spending a day up in the Khyber Pass was a, a memory that I'll have for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um a day with the the Khyber riflemen in their in their army barracks halfway up halfway up the Khyber Pass. Um, it was just a fun just a fun for me uh, experience because outside of cricket, I'm a traveler. So to to now get paid to go to Pakistan and have it done for free, um, (laughs) I'm taking every opportunity I can get. Even though at the time we were surrounded by security and just across the road, you have to have like a couple of armed armed guards with you and your own personal Australian security. But it was, it was just, yeah, a great tour and, and the people there were fantastic and our, our our liaison manager we had and i just can't remember his name but he was a fantastic guy we had six weeks while we were there mm. um just great memories
1: and, and that's the thing. I mean, you're in that team, but you weren't just sort of an also-ran. You were an integral part of that side that, that created that all-time record. The West Indies had the record up to then, 11 games undefeated. You guys went 16 undefeated. I mean, jeez. And you're there. I mean, you play 18 tests. You average 26, which is an unbelievable average for an off-spin bowler playing test cricket, particularly at that time. That was such a strong time in international cricket. Um you know the fact you're able to achieve that success, and then to be named the Test Player of the Year for the year two thousand at the Allen Border Medal Nights. What, what did that feel like?
2: <laughs> oh, I was a little bit drunk that night. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I had no idea that I was even going to be in voting for anything. So I was just there to enjoy myself. And yeah, on our table, I think it was me and Damien Fleming and Greg Blewett and. Uh, michael kasiewicz and a few other guys i can't remember the other guys on there and um we decided between ourselves that every time one of us got a boat in whatever metal it was we'd, we'd drink the drink in front of us well, i was i was on red wine uh, <laughs> i'd had close to you know our table was getting boats left right center i'd probably had two bowls of everyone they announced i'd won it like and I I, I I equated to being pulled over by the police when you've been speeding and you, yeah. or you think of being bank driving and all of a sudden you sober up really quickly. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm sitting in the back of the room. I'm not near the front where the award winners normally sit. Yeah. I'm way back. So I've, I've got a 40, 50-yard walk. I've got put the jacket back on, my girlfriend's crying next to me, and all the guys are cheering. And now I've got to try to get up there after the countback between me and Michael Slater. Yeah. Uh, I've got to get up to the stage and now talk to Richie Beno, one of my heroes as well. So wow. that whole night was just a, was just a... Uh, amazing amazing for me. I hadn't even packed for the Indian tour yet. We were leaving the next day to go to India. Um, I got My girlfriend went home. and I, I, All my friends rang me and they all got dressed up and they came into the into Crown Casino and we had a really big night out. Uh, I lost <laughs> on, my trophy man. that I got. Um, the nightclub found it for me and kept it for me for a few weeks to we go back from India. Um, I got to India and unpacked my suitcase and there was nothing but like three T-shirts, a pair of shorts and some thongs. <laughs> that was my girlfriend packing for me. My cricket gear was all right, but as far as going out, clothes or anything social, there yeah. was nothing there for me to wear.
1: Fantastic. Oh, mate, it's you're living the dream. Hey, on that Indian tour, that was one of the greatest tours of all time for people that, that perhaps missed it, too young to, to know about it. The 2001 Three Test Tour of india i mean that was just incredible you had the lakshman yep. and, and dravit you know the follow-on the turnaround the second test third test You had abhijan singh taking a hat trick um what was it like on that tour cole what was, what was it like
2: i sit back now and i, and I came back to back this way up that tour and you know obviously i grew up playing cricket so a lot of my friends are cricketers and cricket people and they all said they hadn't watched cricket for a few years because it was getting boring and it was you know tedious and but to and everyone said that that was the rebirth of test match cricket that mm. series all my friends said that people back in australia said that the media were talking about it at that time being the rebirth even though we lost mm. it was such an exciting series um the the, the there was the, the game at eden gardens um there was 110 people there every day jeez so you're playing a game in front of half a million people yeah. um they're all cheering for their team not cheering for your team at all yeah yeah um the third test that i played in you're down at fine leg and they're they're throwing water bombs at you and by the first hour by the second hour of the first day you're standing in half an inch of water at fine leg um they're throwing little blocks of concrete and locks at you not to try to hurt you just get your attention so you turn around and yeah so you're standing amongst the, like a, a, a thousand paper airplanes <laughs> uh, empty bags of water, stones and locks that have been thrown at you, padlocks, and just a phenomenal experience. And to, to hear their crowd, the, the way that their supporters supported at the time Sachin Tendulkar. we think we have sporting heroes in Australia, but unless you've been to India when Sachin was at his, at his best uh-huh. and he's batting them at number three and they're cheering when, they, when the first big falls because they mm-hmm. know that Sachin is coming in next. And all you hear for the next eight minutes is just satin, satin, satin. <laughs> like you hear that from 100,000 people. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Like you're there going, this is, this is really cool. Yeah. Um, and then and, that, and then to watch Matthew Hayden in that series, um, mm. just played out of his skin. Phenomenal. If not for him, we would have lost those three tests in probably three days each. Mm. Um, he was just phenomenal. Um, Harbison just had an incredible series for an off spinner. Um, I still say this day he didn't spin it square. Um, because of his height and in the, the loop that he got hmm. uh, and he bowled a really really good line um, he just tied the Australian batsmen in knots and he got to a stage where the guys were scared to use their feet and then you start seeing bat pads everywhere and then guys start to play back off spinners which is a deadly sin Yeah, um, he just he had Australian in a trance um, to see the way that they played Shane Warne in that series was just ridiculous the shots they were playing BVS in that test match where they didn't lose the wicket for a day. Um, you had to see that that pitch had holes in it like almost an inch deep. Yeah. And BVS was running down the wicket, hitting him inside out through the covers. Just ridiculous cricket that went on right throughout that series. Yeah, it was just a phenomenal series to sit back and watch. And then mm. thankful I got to play that third test and be a part of it. And uh, uh, and just to be able to come back and look and sit back and then go, wow, that was, a, that was an awesome series of cricket. Not yeah. just a loss for anybody, but just great cricket.
1: Yeah, bloody. Hell. I, you went out on a good note too. I think it was a four for you got in the second dig. Is that right? for
2: I think I got three and three. I yeah. Think, in okay. Game, or four and two. Might oh. be four and two. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's a nice way to go out too. Um, what was Steve War like as a captain? As I think he was cool. Kid, yeah. Uh, I played under sixteens
2: against Stephen and Mark, so I, I knew them both reasonably. And again, you know, twelve years of first class cricket against them as well, and. Um, the beauty, the difference between Mark War and, and Mark Taylor, say, and, and Stephen was that, and only had Tubby for a, you know, a couple of tests. Tubby was the captain and it was his team, um, mm-hmm. and he made most of the decisions. Um, and then when Stephen took over, Stephen really opened it up to the rest of the team to have opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether you're playing your first test or your 101st test, um, he wanted your input. Uh, as a bowler for me that was fantastic to have a captain letting me set the field 90% of the time Yeah. Um, because now I'm, now I'm comfortable the captain knows what I can do is let me do whatever I want to do and let me do it how I do it
4: hmm.
2: um, not that Mark didn't do that Mark was just different he knew what I could do and he set the field the way I was going to bowl hmm. um, and just expect me to bowl to that field but Stephen had a lot of input um, team meetings were a lot more open um, he was he was the boss. No doubt he was the captain. And um, I remember one day at the MCD against the West Indies, I was bowling at the tail. And I really got a chance to bowl the tail because Norman's McGrath and Warren came back on after I got, I, if I got eight and nine out. I'd be off. I'd have one <laughs> over two for nine. You have to have a break, Cole. I'm going to bring the good guy, I'm going to bring the big boys back on. And he left me on for a couple of overs. And number 10 came out. And I wanted the guy at short mid-wicket. But Stephen said, no, I'm going to I'm going to drop him back. And I drop mid-off back. And the next ball the guy that spooned it up right to short mid wicket. And I sort of went, sort of let the F-word drop and then damn it, Stephen. And he just he walked up me like came in the biggest server of all time. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, 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 So I tried to shut up after that. Yeah. But I mean it was it was fine. It was he was right to do what he
1: do what he did. But you know, I, I was going to a plan and his building plan was different than my bowling plan on that day for an over. Yeah. <laughs> hey, talking about the plans, you sound like someone who's very methodical, very methodical about the way you went about it. And on this podcast, you talk about sports performance and that. How much of analysis went into it? You watching tape of your upcoming opponents, coming up with your plans ahead of time?
2: We used we had tape back in those days.
1: We, we, mm-hmm. Our era was just before that
2: tape period. Yeah. Um, so, really, most of what I learned was watching TV, watching test match cricket live. Yeah. Um, not tape. I think the invent of tape um was is amazing. I went and watched Australia. Last time I was back in Australia, which is maybe six, five or six years ago. Hmm. Um, I went to the MCB to watch Australia play and Michael DiBanuto was the batting coach. I think he's back there now. Hmm. Um I went into the room after the game to say good day and he had all the batsmen had iPads out, and Michael had given their highlights for the day of their batting. And hmm. I've just they were um, swiping through the good shots they had played all day. Yeah. Positive feedback about themselves. I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah. I imagine the bowls were doing the same thing, swiping through left to see the best balls they would bowled yeah. made. I wish we had that. Um, back in 20 odd years ago, we were really relying on just what you knew, yeah. um, what you knew your own ability level was, and, and what the other players in the teams that might have played as this guy before, what they were telling you.
1: Yeah, it has evolved so much. Do you think what you did, being such a versatile player, are you sort of surprised there's not more of that, where you have players who can play multiple roles? Um, I
2: think it's starting to come again. Um, I see now in T20 there's guys that are bowling medium pace, bowling spin, reverse sweeping and reverse batting is almost the same thing these days. Yeah, true. I think it's slightly illegal. Because uh, I think I don't. I think you should need to tell the bowler you're going to sweep in for six left-handed when you're a right-hand batsman. Yeah. Uh, I think it gives a batsman a bit of an advantage. Um, but I, I know I hear that there's bowlers around the world that are doing both. Hmm. Um, I hear there's there's batsmen. I know for a fact there's got to be a batsman who can bat left and right-handed, genuinely do what whatever they want to do. Hmm. I always thought growing up when I was playing cricket that I, I was a baseballer at first. I was a pitcher, yeah. and I always liked pitching to left hand. Left-hand batters. Yeah. Well, imagine if the whole team turned around and batted right hand. Mm-hmm. Same in, you know, if Mitchell Johnson loves bowling in swing as the left hand batsman, why don't all the batsmen just turn around and bat right hand yeah. and just negate Mitchell Johnson's best in swinging yorker? Totally. I mean, when Shane Warman's dominating world cricket, his legs and his leggies, why not all turn around and bat left hand? You know, yeah. just. There's no reason why it can't happen in the future. It just just needs a coach and someone with a bit of vision to spend a year or so training their team to do that. You, you live in you live in the US, you've seen it. Baseballers are about left hand one innings, right hand in the next innings, and they hit equal amount of home runs, you know, left or right handed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably the next area that cricket can go to to really change the game again is switch hitting, um, mm-hmm. switch bowling, left and right arm bowling, which which I did as well. Mm-hmm. Um there's no reason why you can't do it. I just think it takes some with a bit of courage to do it. Yeah,
1: uh, totally. Hey, well, would you get into a bit of coaching stuff in future? You know, we, we see the game expanding, all different teams from all around the world loving their cricket now. Would you get into it? Um, I, I was given an opportunity over here about
2: seven or eight years ago to, to help the U.S. team out. Yep. Um, but at that time, U.S. cricket was, was a shambles. Wasn't very well run. It was you know mm-hmm. they wanted me to quit my job here in Las Vegas to travel to New York and Florida and, and California and to do some coaching with with no guarantee I would ever get paid for anything or no guarantee that the association was even going to be recognised by the ICC. Mm-hmm. During that first three or four years I was in the US, the ICC suspended US cricket two or three times because um, okay. it just wasn't this wasn't being run very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and now to be a coach, you got to be certified. Um, I don't have the certifications. I don't have the time to go back and get the certifications. Maybe I could go back and, and as a mentor mm. at the very least. Um, but I respect the guys who are the coaches now. They've, they've done the hard work. Um, you don't have to be in a superstar player to be a coach these days. You need to understand how the body works, uh, the biomechanics, the physical side of the game, the mental side of the game. I think the best coaches in, in sport around the world. America is a, is a great example is people that not necessarily played the game at the highest level, but they're very smart about the game. And you see in the NFL over here now, there's a lot of 34-year-old coaches, head coaches now. And in baseball, there's a lot of 72-year-old coaches who, who <laughs> managing teams. So baseball is almost a reverse of football is having a regeneration of young kids coming through. Hmm. Um, in the college game, I love watching Michigan as my team. And John Harbaugh last year was criticized for having a, a very boring style of play. So he got rid of all these old coaches and brought in a bunch of 30-year-olds. And now Michigan are 8-1 this year. So yeah. it's just changed the way the game is played. And that's, and that's all cricket is. It's just changing the way it's played.
1: Interesting. Well, uh, you've been so generous with your time. Just last one, I mean, and it's appropriate for the bloke known as Funky to end up living in Las Vegas, which is, you know, the entertainment capital of the world. How do you enjoy Vegas? Um, <laughs> carefully. Thank you. <laughs> I used to. I, I was a. I was a gambler.
2: Um, I should admit, uh, in in Melbourne, but in a, not in Vegas. I haven't gambled since I've been here, fourteen years. Um, good on
1: you. you. can't
2: live here and, and be a casino gambler unless you're a card counter or something like that, and they catch you pretty quickly. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Um. But my wife and I will go and drop twenty bucks in a slot machine somewhere, whether it's at a gas station or a, a pharmacy or I mean, <laughs> anywhere you want to go. You can drop twenty bucks in a slot machine in Vegas. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Um. But it is the entertainment capital of the world. I've seen every major act that's come through the Vegas in the last 14 years. The best um, live entertainment is here. Mm. Um, I'm a hockey fan now, the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, that's probably the most exciting sport I've ever watched in my life.
1: Yeah,
2: right. um, at T-Mobile Arena with 18,500 people supporting the one team. Yeah. Um, and they put on such a great show, yeah. Having played sport in, in Australia and around the world, and then now supporting and watching sport in the US, and just the way they do it on TV over here as well, mm. um, they do sport better than anywhere else in the world. Um, yeah. The introduction for the Vegas Golden Knights is a is a phenomenal experience. Every three nights a week we go to games. Um, <laughs> Gilly was over here a couple of years ago, just before Gilly was here the week before, the week before COVID struck. Oh wow! Um, and we and we accidentally bumped into each other at a game of hockey. At the end of the game, we were both coming out of the bathroom. We, we sort of ran to each other. He'd fun. been calling on my old cell phone number, so he, he couldn't contact me, so that's how we met. Yeah. And Gilly's now a big supporter of the Vegas Golden Knights because, really, if you haven't seen ice hockey, and like when, when, when you can have a Fennigan punch-up and the referee just stands back and watches you until one of you falls on the ice, it's hysterical. <laughs> I watched a preseason game this year where there was 11 guys in the box in the first two minutes of the game.
1: Oh, they must ran out
2: of players, but but it's just <laughs> yeah. good fun and a lot of respect to, to the goal tenders over here. um you know, These pucks are traveling at 97 miles an hour, and they're fucking yeah. pucks out of the air. And and these guys, I watched a guy in the first year take a puck full onto his jaw, just a regular player in the field. Jeez. Hit him in the jaw; he went down like a bag of spuds got up, skated off, and came back on two minutes later. God, I mean, these, these guys are tight. Yeah.
1: Extraordinary.
2: Uh, NFL football is not that exciting over here. It's a pretty boring game. I've been to a few games over here. Uh, College football, I love. Uh, Yeah. Especially Michigan. I can't imagine being a school kid and playing in front of 109,000 people every Saturday Yeah, Michigan. (laughs) That's that's phenomenal. I mean, those kids are superstars.
1: Uh, they certainly are, as are you. Um, Cole, I just I thank you so much for your time. I love it. And for people listening, you know, this is a great tangible example of, you know, if you believe hard enough for long enough in your dreams, you can make them come true. Colin Miller, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks, mate. You've just got in time for my wife to come home and the dogs to start parking. So it's oh, good time to end. Good timing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge. For ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network.
1: I'm very excited to welcome to the show now the founder of Timing Solutions, Nick Fredrickson. And it's an incredible story of the ingenuity and passion and skill application that can go into sports tech bringing it to life and specifically with little athletics uh one of the absolute pinpoints of australian sporting culture little Aths, uh nick frederickson welcome to the
4: show yeah thanks loki thanks for having me
1: oh mate it's great to have you on and you know so many great tech stories start in a garage isn't it? you know you it, know it's it's the steve jobs it's the jeff bezos <laughs> it's the nick Fredrickson, <laughs> and your great uh, initial partner in crime Maddie uh, Verovasky, mate, can you tell us about the journey you and Matt went on? Timing Solutions, you guys provide all of the timing infrastructure for little athletics in this country, which is the the cornerstone of our future Olympic generation. It's such a great part of the Aussie culture, keeping kids fit and healthy, healthy and active. You and your technology helps to bring it to life. Um, also, you're in schools as well, different other uh, athletic pursuits.
4: Can you tell us how your product was born and can you describe it for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> probably 13 years ago now, I think LinkedIn gave me a reminder the other day, which kind of freaked me out. It, uh, <laughs> around that time ago, I uh, moved from Brisbane down to Victoria and my uncle, Tino Vescovi, he's a bit of a Dr. Carl of all things fun and creative and electronics yeah, he just made up this one apparatus to help a local little Laths club. I think it was Box Hill Little Laths okay. uh, with timing. Instead of having parents and stopwatches, or even one of the original timing boxes he made, he wanted to make a timing gate, which was literally uh, a steel or aluminium kind of hinged door frame structure that you put across the track. Okay. And basically, so he made that. One club loved it. Another club wanted to to get their hands on it, and he's like, "Hang on, I'm retired." This was fun. I don't want to have to make more of these. And that's roughly when I rolled into the back into Melbourne and his son, my cousin Matt, and I were chatting. We're both kind of looking for something to do on the side. So we started making these up with his dad's guidance. So basically, that's how it all began back in the day with Matt, myself, and his dad's help in his mum and dad's garage and his his mum wasn't so keen with all the metal filings and stuff being walked through the house. So we, we had to uh, find a different location. And that's when I ended up getting a place that had a nice size garage. So we moved everything back to my place in the garage. And then Mm. we morphed from a, an overhead physical wired structure into a wireless. Mm. So instead of taking a number of days to build a system, it would take an hour or two to build a system. So it kind of streamlined the process. In theory made it simpler and easier for users to use and then off the back of the hardware uh, we realized that the timing hardware was an accessory and the core of the product needed to be the software and all the other results that get gets captured so we teamed up with another dad back in the day uh, michael daly and he'd Mm. um, created an access system for his club that was talking to our hardware um, and access being a local database effectively on someone's laptop so we were then giving him royalties and going and selling the package of our hardware and our software to various centers so it's all very grassroots based there wasn't any state contracts or anything big happening we're just trying yeah. to grow and see how it goes. go yeah. and then you fast forward a number of years we ended up getting contracts and we went from a local access database to a web results platform mm. which obviously saves people downloading and installing Microsoft access onto laptops. They just need a browser and internet. And then as internet became more ubiquitous and constant around Australia, it became easier for clubs, even regional ones to use the web-based platform. And then nowadays it's all web-based and we've got apps for phones and tablets and all that sort of thing. So it's just trying to modernize what was a very paper heavy and volunteer heavy process, trying to streamline that.
1: I, I just, I love it. I love the fact that, you know, Uncle Tino's there in the garage and he's just a whiz. He's just got that natural knack for being able to do this sort of stuff he brings it to life you and his son helped to breathe you know further life into it to get it out there to make it into what now has been a product across little athletics i know your huge markets are in new south wales and victoria can you tell us what your approach is so little athletics club you know somewhere in sydney you're there how do you set them up what infrastructure do they have can you give us an idea of the game day process so to speak
4: yeah yeah for sure so yep. Every state in Australia, apart from NT, they're just coming back online now, but basically every state in Australia, there's around up to 500 centres around Australia that are using our software. Not all of those centres have our timing hardware. That's optional, but we've got state contracts that mean that uh, the centres get access to this. They don't have to be invoiced by us. We just provide the software. So everything that we do is remote, basically, so we don't have to go... To the town out in the back of new south wales or up in up to Broome, or any random spots we can just train up users over the zoom um yeah we've got our support forum with videos and then they can self-help and then we can dial in and do one-on-one training if we need to but yeah. so we try to design it to be really user friendly so that there's a high turnover of committee members at centers so even if we trained up a guru this year he or she may not be around next year so we try and make it simple enough so that somebody new could pick it up at least as long as they're comfortable with a laptop or an app of some sort they should be able to muddle through it otherwise we've got the support for them and we do training every year with the different states at different times at their AGMs yeah Uh, but basically if you're a little center hopefully you'd have some timing hardware if you didn't, you'd have eight parents with stopwatches trying to pay attention. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they do a good job. Um, outside of that, you may be reusing recording sheets still, but hopefully not. You'd be using our app. Yeah. Um, and so all that data is getting captured in real time. And if you've got internet there, then you're uploading in real time.
1: Yeah.
4: As little Johnny walks off the track from the 100 meters, his time's waiting for him up in his family portal. And there's a new pretend ticket in his um, achievement book. Did Did you ever do Little Aths when you were young, Lockie?
1: No, no, I no. was too slow, hopeless. Don't talk to me about <laughs> Little athletes. or swimming. I used to sink to the bottom of the pool. Another story uh-huh. for another day. So no, but I did we, school carnivals and that, but I used to always like the Little athletes kids were always so happy. And so mm-hmm. we, I actually, if I, oh, I'll tell you the story. It's not the. It's the Doncaster Little Athletics Club. So not Box Hill, but not far down the road from that one that it all began with for you guys. Yeah. I used to play cricket. Uh, the Oval and the Little athletics, uh, athletics Club are, like, joined together, and so they're on the same premises. So I'd be playing cricket. Oh, I love that. But then you'd always see the Little athle- Athletics, and, and, you know, it was around the time of the Sydney Olympics, so it was sort of oh, in vogue to be a, an athlete. And mm-hmm. then, you know, as it is at any time, but particularly that time, and it will be again with Brisbane coming up, and you always just see the Little Athletics kids, and they're always happy, and they had their ribbons, and they won their races. And so, yeah, but no, not me. That's it. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> well, you if you had done it, you would have had a, a paper book and you okay. would have had your paper tickets that had been handwritten, your time or distance, whatever it was. And then you'd yeah. go and use some clag or some yoo or something and stick it in the book. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the season, you had this awesome, crinkly uh, book with all your tickets. So versus nowadays, it's all virtual. So the moment you walk off the track, if you went and printed off a PDF version, it'll be one smooth surface, so you kind of miss that texture of crinkly paper.
1: <laughs> so no more clag, no more clag.
4: You can you can still do it if you really wanted to. But, um, <laughs> but we're just trying to streamline it.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, and, and it makes a, a, a lot of sense. Can I ask for you? What's it like when you go to a little? Because like, you're you yourself, are, you know, a great athlete. You're such a naturally gifted uh, person. Can I ask whether it's on the bike, running? Um, can I ask, what's it like for you? You got young kids as well. When you go to a Little Laths club and you see all these kids having the time of their lives, and you know that it's you and your you know, your awesome Uncle Tino, your cousin Maddie, and all your other business partners there, you are helping to breathe life into the fun that they're having at Little Aths. It must feel
4: awesome. Yeah, it is like creating anything um, from a bit of paper and pen and drawing up an idea, then listening to users and then coming back and reworking it. Um, and then seeing people use it and, and know things about the system that I didn't know and getting all that feedback. So it's been really cool just to, to see the growth of the software. Um, the sport itself is in a pretty strong place there. Obviously Olympic years are always helpful. COVID has been a challenge, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's always great getting down to the track and, and just seeing it happen in real time and being a part of it and then getting more feedback. So we, we've got a crazy little story we thought with the database when we first uh commissioned the the start of this system this is the web-based one we're like all right we'll probably need six months we should have it all done um mm. and then then that's it we just need enough money to get it built in six months time so we raised some money and got started and 13 years oh. Ten years later, we're still working on it. So <laughs> it was like uh, it's like everything software. There's always more to do. There's either a bug or a feature or both that you're trying to add or or tweak yeah. or add benefits. So it's very naive of us to think we could build something in six months and then we'd be done. So we we learned the hard way on that that well- thought process. Yeah, e- e- yeah, ever-evolving, and that's a good thing
1: too, the fact you're not being complacent. Um, Something interesting you said there about the feedback you get. What's been the most interesting thing you've heard from, you know, uh, your, your grassroots, little laths, you know, someone who's been there for 30 years helping out the kids, and you've got a bit of feedback from them that you're going, oh, wow, okay, that's a really good point. We're going to build that into our product. Is there something that stands out?
4: Good question. Um. I guess we're constantly getting hit with feedback. We're just trying to pick out one that would, was a real aha moment as such. Yeah. Um. Whoa. I could pull one out of the air, but I'm not sure if it, it's the the gem that you're looking for. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, Well, there's one but- the other day where that we were asking for a hotkey, as in if I press Control F, for example, mm. that would do a particular function. We mm. never thought that that would be um, they wanted the race to ignore runners in a particular scenario
1: Yeah. Um,
4: I'd never thought that you would want to do that uh, yeah. but we've had a couple centres ask for it recently so from the mm. ether somehow they've all kind of aligned their thoughts and came to us around the same time like, so, okay well maybe we'll add in a control F to ignore race uh, as they come through so yeah. it's just random things because it's You think the product's well grounded because it's been around for so long, but there's always something extra or another idea or or angle to work
3: with.
1: And I think that's something your clients would love, the fact that you are so accessible and open-minded to being able to tailor-make it for them um, mm. and being able to have that very, you know, because not everyone's a tech expert, you know, quite the opposite often. And so the fact you're able to make the functionality really easy, really uh, applicable for people to be able to go, yep, I get it. I can implement this on a Saturday morning. Um, so, what about, you know, when it comes to, and I've personally, you know, worked with you uh, covering off road triathons, cross triathons. We started the World Championships five years ago. And the whole world came to Australia. The Snowy Mountains, one of the most beautiful places you could ever go. And, you know, Timing Solutions was providing all of the timing infrastructure for, you know, a world championship event. Incredible. For you to be able to take, you know, your product from the Little Ath's track, which is obviously around a a fixed position, to then be able to implement it. Where you've got cross triathlon, which is traversing some of the most, you know, ultimate off road terrain, the snowy mountains going up and down gigantic terrain in the water, swimming through, you know, rapids, uh, being able to be out on the bike, having your timing infrastructure applicable in that environment. How are you able to adapt it sort of to the off road uh, structure?
4: Yeah, well, basically, Simon and Robin, uh, that you're very familiar with. You do a great mm. job there too, by the way, lucky It's always mm. a pleasure sitting next to you at the finish line. Um, they came to us back in the day looking to get, because they heard I was doing some timing stuff, wasn't quite sure what that meant. Mm. Um, and they were looking to use RFID, which is Radio Frequency Identification. Mm. And a little funny story, it may not be true, but I'll say it because it sounds cool. Apparently RFID came from the Cold War era where uh, oh, right. RFID is basically an antenna that has no power supply, but it can absorb energy if you beam energy at it, like the tollway tag in your car. Yeah, right. So apparently, the uh, the the Ruskies made this awesome little doll <laughs> yeah. and put inside there an RFID antenna with a microphone. Yeah, and they gave it to some US dignitaries. This is the story I heard, and I'll just keep going with it. But that's it. Put it, gave it to the US dignitary. He, she, whoever put it in a in their office. Yeah. And for all, all normal reasons, it was just a piece of wood. But the moment you beam some energy at it with the right yeah. frequency, it would then turn into a transmitting microphone. So from outside, <laughs> somebody could beam energy at this statue, and it would then become a live transmitter microphone within the office. So you can imagine the right scenarios that could be quite useful. So that's apparently how RFID was first created. It had a, a, a sinister starting point, but it's used everywhere with tracking goods and tollway on your car and obviously timing events. It's it's widely used there. I love that. So uh, sorry, I digress. But uh, Simon no, Robin pl- wanted to uh, help, <laughs> needed a hand with, with getting that set up. And so stupidly, again, I jumped in. Oh, how hard could it be? I can buy some of this stuff off the shelf. got Mm. our software engineers put the two together and it'll be done first go but no it took a a little bit of patience from simon and robin it took us a season or two to really start to get a handle of which tags to use and the different combinations of antennas and all that sort of thing yeah so it was it was through their patience that we were able to build up to the level to do the worlds with yourself and the rest of the team there that made an awesome event so it's uh Bit scary as always, but it worked out well. So, well,
1: absolutely. And you know, the cool thing about all this is, you know, the gold medalist from uh, the women's uh, cross triathlon world championship of this event we speak of in the Snow Mountains was Flora Duffy from Bermuda, who only a couple of months ago won Olympic gold. Uh, in the try, you know, uh, in Tokyo. So it's pretty cool to be able to... You were there. Your product was what allowed Flora Duffy's uh, result to be perfectly illuminated. All the results, all the timings, everything, as she was in the water, on the bike, and then crossing the line. Uh, so you had her timing there. Five years later, Olympic champion, the best in the world. So it's, it's pretty all, cool. all
4: my doing, that's
1: right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, mate, I... It is amazing. Can you tell us the way you've been able to design the timing because it is very easy for the athlete. There is no there's not a great imposition on them. Um the way that you know you're able to analyze as they're coming through a timing gate to be able to collect that data and ultimately all the way through to the finish line. Can you just describe that process just a little bit for us?
4: Yeah, so basically, especially in a triathlon, you've got multiple locations, potentially up to seven or so different, uh, out of water, into transition, out of transition, on the bike, bike laps, run in, run out, and run Mm -hmm. laps, and then a pre-finish and a finish. So there's all these various locations, basically just a carbon copy of the same setup where you've got an antenna that's providing energy. Uh, The easiest way to think of it is you've got a really dark environment and each of these antennas is like a good old dolphin torch. Yeah. If you remember those. Um, Yeah. And anything that runs through the torch beam in a really dark night is effectively what the RFID antenna is doing. It's creating vision and anything that runs through there, particularly with an RFID tag, wakes up, yells its number. That number gets heard and then recorded and then that all gets transmitted uh, straight up to the cloud as well as back to the finish line So it's and it's backed up locally so there's a few places there if tech has a bad hair day and, and you need to resort to some other way to, to recapture some information yeah. um, so basically just repeat that with all your different stations obviously your tags are really important that A, the athletes have a tag on that's step yeah. one yeah. And uh, the other one is make sure they've got the right tag on so we don't have a, a female appearing when a male is running through or the and so on. So that's obviously up to HQ mm. and all the bag handling there to make sure you get the right tags. Yeah. And then the cool part for yourself at the finish line is all that information is flowing through. Sometimes it can be too much information and, and just trying to trim the screen down to give you just what you need instead of overdose if there's a few hundred athletes and seven checkpoints pumping in data so it's just a matter of trying to get the finish line set up nicely for someone like yourself to then call them home strong and get the crowd pumping and uh <laughs> and and have a great afternoon out so it's it's basically a simple setup once you've got it dialed that is and then let all those feed back to the cloud save locally and also push the finish line so that the MC like yourself can do the great job of calling everyone
1: in. well I must say it is so it is the in terms of trying to commentate stuff, it is so easy. It you know, because you've got all that information at your fingertips, the way you and your system presents it is just perfect. So purely just from a commentary point of view, which is a small aspect of it, it's perfect. And then obviously, you know, for the athletes point of view to be able to see all their times, all their splits, um, it's just so comprehensive. And, and you know, as we say, it's so minimalist, this little tag they wear. And I love your analogy of, you know, the dark night, the dolphin torch is shining across. Every time the athlete crosses through, it registers. And it's as simple as that. Uh, very complex in trying to do it, but the explanation, perfect. Hey, um, and that's Robin and Simon Lazenby from uh, Into Adventure, the the group that put on that world championship, and many other. Of the off-road uh, triathlon events across Asia Pacific. Hey, um, what's the next step? You know, you guys have been at this for thirteen years. You, Tino, Uncle Tino in the garage. You got the KGB things coming in. All this technology <laughs> from the Cold War. What? What's the next step? What? What's the big goal on the horizon for you guys?
4: I'd say the the next evolution for for anything physical these days is can you remove the physical element and do a software only approach so Mm. there's various ways to to go about doing that and obviously self-driving cars and lots of other things are using computer vision so Mm. that that seems to be the next the next logical place to go obviously it's it's a new area that needs lots of time and money and effort and hopefully some really cool engineers that can help pull that off but basically if you can see it as a human with your two pretty average distracted cameras i.e your eyes (laughs) and you could in theory time something whether it's a a sprint race or a swimming race or a or a cross-country triathlon or any of those things then in theory Mm. a computer should be able to do that uh, and in with the right frame rate more accurately and less distracted than you could so i'd say that's that's the next morphing of of this sort of technology so as long as you can see someone and or a number or a face identify who they are identify what the finish line is and how they relate to that finish line then you can start to time people just with software and vision which is all that we've been doing for centuries with our thumb and a stopwatch and our eyes. So something along those lines.
1: I love it. Well, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Um, For more information, timingsolutions.com.au, timingsolutions.com.au. There might be some people out there thinking, yeah, you know what, this is the right, product for our event. Uh, So I I couldn't encourage him more. Nick is an absolute ripper. He's someone that's just so, uh, you know, has so much humanity. For someone who's very skillful, also has that great humility to be able to help people be able to help people who don't really understand things help them to get it and to understand so they can enjoy it and bring it to life as we say Uh, from little athletics to all the school carnivals you're helping to really create that next generation of aussie athlete and most importantly helping to keep young kids fit and healthy which is there's can be no more thing important than that um nick frederickson i thank you so much for your time
4: thanks lucky have a good afternoon buddy beautiful you too my friend
1: I'm very excited now. Uh, this is an incredible story about a husband and wife team, a couple of Aussies that have created a business that actually not just created a business, they created a whole concept. And you know, you hear the stories of you know Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, wanting to sell books online, little bit of an operation he sets up, you know, in the back blocks. Now, it's a trillion dollar company, the biggest in the world. These are the stories. It starts off small, it starts off minute, and then it grows into something magnificent. Let's get in and delve into ReShare, which is going to absolutely blitz the Australian marketplace when it comes to bringing more opportunity to people in terms of economics and also increase our sustainability, looking after the environment Uh, The husband-wife team is Pete Coleman and Callie Dang. Pete Coleman, an old man of mine, joins us on the show. G'day, Pete. How are
0: you? G'day, Lockie. Very good, mate. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, mate,
1: absolutely my pleasure. So tell us about ReShare. Give us the story, because my understanding is it's like Airbnb, but for everything. This is the opportunity where people can put up items. They have it where people can come and borrow. They pay a fee. You borrow it, you enjoy it, you use it, and then you give it back. Is that in essence what re-share is?
0: Yeah, Lockie, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there. And you know, we're exactly that. Um, You know, not everyone has to own absolutely everything. You know, you can you can borrow it from someone. Um, Yeah. So what we are, we're an we're an online uh, platform, Mm. a mobile app, and you know, users will download that. They can they can share household items. And exactly right, it's kind of like the. Airbnb concept, but for everything else, um, you know, whether it's a attempt to go camping or a, um, you know a, the latest tool or drills, or for a renovation, or maybe even you're getting married and you need some sort of uh, marquee and, and light system, and you don't want to pay an arm and a leg for these things, so you can borrow it on Reshare. Um, right. So we're kind of everything but uh, houses and automotive, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it just makes so much sense, and, and you know, from a sporting point of view. Like, I remember when I was a little kid, and I was very lucky, you know, mum and dad, very nice, they they saved up money, and they really helped me out as a little kid to buy all the cricket equipment. Because, like, cricket, you know, the bat, the pads, the helmet, the and it's all essential because, you know, you got to protect yourself from getting cleaned up by the ball. So you need the pads, you need the helmet, obviously, uh, you need everything, and it costs a lot of money. And, you know, if you've got a family with multiple kids and they all need helmets, they all need, they all need everything. And bats are, geez, they're expensive. So this is the situation where, you know, whether it's cricket gear, golf clubs, you want to go skiing, different um, activities, outdoor pursuits, sporting pursuits. You know, you can have the equipment and you just borrow it on reshare, Pete. I mean, it's perfect.
0: Exactly right, Lockie. And some of the types of items that you sort of listed off there, particularly things like, you know, snow gear or sports gear or a kayak, you know, might be the types of things that you're experimenting. You don't really know if if it's going to be something you want to actually invest in purchasing. You can actually try it. And, uh, you know, if you realize you're not as good of a skier as you imagine, (laughs) then you can basically return it back with a a very minimal charge. So it's kind of a win-win try before you buy sort of concept with that sort of thing as well. Yeah.
1: And that's the other thing, Pete, I think, like, you know, if, um, like, Pete and I used to be roommates, so we used to live in, in South Bank, in Melbourne, in the inner city, and you got, you know, so many people in, in the inner city living in apartment buildings and, and young families and that. Now, obviously, if you're living in a tiny apartment in the middle of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, wherever, you probably don't have all the camping gear. You don't have, you know, your tents, your generators, your outdoor cooking equipment, all this sort of stuff. But, yeah, and you have to go to the shop and buy it just for one trip away. Whereas you might be able to just go and reshare and see that, you know, there's a family living out in the suburbs that are going to be on your way to where your camping destination is anyway. You lock it in with them. You get all their camping gear. Have a nice weekend. Bring it back. Done. One off. And it's a fraction of the cost. I mean, I just think... You know, I want to get into this with you, Pete, because you know you're an incredibly gifted scientist. You work as a geologist with some of the biggest companies in the world. You're passionate about the environment, about sustainability. I know your wonderful wife Kelly is as well. You got young family, beautiful young boys there. So you're obviously passionate about you know the environment and continuing a great future for future generations. Can you tell us that motivation for you, Pete?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, Lucky. And this is basically one of the big, uh, you know, ethos of us behind the app, you know, obviously, it, you know, it may make us some money. But one of the big things that we're passionate about is the environment, like you said, mm. you know, how much resources goes into, you know, making a kayak, for example, the amount of plastic that goes into it, or, yeah. you know, the amount of resources that goes into making everything, if everyone was to own one of everything, um, you know, it would be a huge demand on our on our planet. So, you know why not just share a little bit so then you know we don't have to make it in another factory and and have to produce more products so sort of that sharing you know is a big part of uh you know reducing our footprint our carbon footprint and and all these sorts of things so we're it's a big part of why we're doing this and something we're really passionate about
1: now Pete, how can people get involved with this? Yeah, you know, people listen to this going, "Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't think of that. This is a great idea. This is a great concept. How can people tap into it? How can they go and borrow something or maybe they want to put something of theirs up on, you know, on the app?"
0: Yeah, so we're a new startup, like, like yeah, you've mentioned. We've started up this year, and we're primarily a mobile application. So mm. you can find us in the App Store. So if you were to type in Reshare, one word, R-E-S-H-A-R-E, in Google Play Store or, or Apple Store, mm. you'll find us there, hopefully near the top, and um, and you can download us. It's free to download. It's free to list. And basically, yeah, download, create a small profile, and and ha- have a look around and see what you can find.
1: Just perfect. And and I'm um, on your website now, reshare.com.au, reshare.com.au. It's an absolute winner, Pete. I, I think it ticks all the boxes. I think it's great innovation. Can I ask, what what who, who had the first idea? Was it you or Kelly? Or what were you doing? Were you having a glass of red wine one night there <laughs> in the Barossa and you think, oh, this is what we want to do? Like, How did the idea spark in your mind?
0: Yeah, actually, funny you ask. It was uh, my wife. Um, I won't take the credit for the idea. Um, we were in South Bank, actually, when we were dating, um, and she was trying to make a cake, and uh, and she needed a a, um, a a fruit, I mean, sorry, a, not a fruit, a, a mixer and uh, to make the cake. Yeah. And so she thought, well, I don't own this, but I bet someone down the hallway would own it. Should I knock on everyone's door? You know, wouldn't it be great if there was an inventory list in within the apartment building, you know, where people can share, yeah. you know, household goods, you know, um, electrical products or, or or the like of anything. So that's sort of where the idea started. And we're like, well, how can we make this something that's broader than just the apartment building that maybe, you know, at a whole community scale, we can, we can all share our resources. So that's kind of where it started. Um, yeah, because you don't want to own absolutely everything for a once-off, you know, event or whatever. So it's really about bringing together what everyone's got and, and sort of helping each other out.
1: Mate, it just, it makes so much sense. And it's one of those things where you look at it and go, how has that not already been invented? Like, it just makes so much sense. And the thing I love, probably my favorite part of it, apart from the fact you and Callie are doing it, but it's just the fact that, you know, sport can be really expensive, really expensive. And it shouldn't just be people who've got a heap of cash that can get access to sport. And the fact that you've created this, which gives the opportunity for people who maybe are not going so flush with cash at the minute, but they can still get the opportunity to be able to get equipment, which allows sport to flourish. So I love it from that point of view. The environmental aspect obviously is magnificent. So, mate, Pete, I'm so wrapped with what you're doing. For everyone out there, reshare.com.au, as Pete said, jump on, whether it's the App Store, Google Play, reshare, all one word. And get stuck in to a beautiful step towards a better future for us all. Hey, Pete, I appreciate your time, mate. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much for having me, Lockie.
1: I love when we get to cross to the Netherlands and catch up with our Europe correspondent, absolute gun of top flight football in the Netherlands. Welcome to the show, Miss Chelsea Disseldorp. Thank you. Ah, great to have you back on, Chelsea. Hey, um, now, I've seen some news coming in that um, things in the Netherlands in terms of COVID is not so great at the minute. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, unfortunately it is. Uh, during the last episode, I was quite optimistic and positive about yeah, how things are going on over here in the Netherlands, also related yeah. to, the, to the sports sector and yeah, being back uh, uh, yeah, with full house, uh, full stadiums, like a lot of supporters in, in the stadium. But, yeah. yeah, things are not going that good, if you look at the daily infection rates, uh, unfortunately. So, yeah, we have some restrictions uh, for the coming uh, weeks. Um, so, already there for, like, one week. Um, and it also means that the stadiums are empty again. So, that, that's very mm-hmm. sad. Because, yeah, okay. on that period, we, uh, as final as one of them, we have two home matches, uh, which has been sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, but now yeah. all these supporters uh, are not allowed to go to the stadium. Um, so, but yeah, of course, uh, it, it, the most important thing is that uh, yeah, the, the people are healthy and that, uh, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's compared to, to football and compared to, to supporters, that, that's very, very important. Yeah, that's the most important yeah. thing. So hopefully it yeah. will help. It was yeah, next to that. There are also some other restrictions uh, related to uh, working from home and mouth mm-hmm. mask um, and mm-hmm. restricted opening hours of the hospitality sector and yeah, some more restrictions. And yeah. so hopefully, uh, how's going on here currently in the Netherlands, uh, is not a trend that's going on in Australia as well, because yeah, if, it, if you look at you guys, then uh, it's kind of going the other way. You, you, you mm-hmm. just have more freedom um, quite late compared to the rest of the world. Um, but hopefully that's yeah. an, uh, yeah, a smart uh, strategy and, and you can still enjoy the freedom uh, over there. Yeah. And I do think it also, uh, like this, this, the, the, the reddish season, like the season of the year you're currently in, uh, helps you. Yeah. Like it's, it's sunny over there and uh, yeah. people are, are a lot of, uh, yeah, yeah, in the outside air. And over here uh, it's autumn, al- almost winter. So it's getting colder yeah. and... And so that also uh, um, doesn't really help uh, related to the infection rates.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I just, I hope that it all cleans up nice and quick and everything can get back to, as you were saying last episode, literally, we were just talking about how things, uh, good things were going in the Netherlands. So hopefully it flips around real quick. Everyone's nice and safe and um, you're back to your full stadiums and everyone's happy and a great Christmas. So, fingers crossed, everyone in Australia's, you know, feeling for you. Definitely. Hey, um, now, let's get some positive news because... Your team, Feyenoord-Rotterdam, of course, you yourself were an absolute gun player back in the day. You tricked FC. Now you're with Feyenoord-Rotterdam, and you're one of the absolute stars in terms of sports technology, sports analytics with them. Your teams are doing sensational. To your women's team, top of the table in uh, Premier League. And your men's team a third with a game in hand, so basically they could be top really if they had the extra game played already and won it. Uh, extraordinary results! You guys must be feeling sensational.
3: Yeah, it's indeed it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, how they're doing it on the pitch. Um, yeah, so of course we're enjoying that and. And next to the, to the position and to the ranking of the, the Dutch competition, um, in a few mm-hmm. days' time, they also uh, the, the men team also have the opportunity to uh, qualify for the next round in the Conference League uh, mm-hmm. by, by, by by keeping and getting the, the final uh, top position of the of the, um, of the pool, because they are currently in uh, uh, the first position. And if they win yeah. the game, or even in a draw uh, against Slavia Praag, um, they already qualified uh, as number one with one game ahead. So that's also a uh, very important game uh, uh, Yeah, in the coming days.
1: Fantastic. Well, you're on a roll. And speaking of good news, uh, tell us about some fantastic World Cup qualification. There's nothing better in the World Game.
3: Yeah. So also the Dutch team uh, um, yeah. and I was qualified for the World Cup last week. Um, mm. So they had actually two opportunities to qualify. Um, so the first opportunity uh, they, they had to win from uh, Montenegro, which is not yeah. that big, um, not a very big football country, but they are doing okay in, in, in the league, in the pool. Mm. Um, but they had to win that game and they were leading with uh, two against zero. So we all thought, yeah, okay, it's like, let's say it's in the pocket. We are going to uh, the World Cup. But then the last yeah. 10 minutes, uh, Montenegro scored twice. So that game ended in 2-2. Um, mm-hmm. But they had another chance to qualify. So that was that was great. And, and that game was here in the in the final stadium. So in the in the Kuip. And uh, furtherly, yeah. it was the first game without supporters here in the Netherlands. Yeah. So it was also sold out. It was a very important game, like the most important game against Norway. So um, and the winner of the game should qualify for the for the World Cup. And, for us, yeah. the Netherlands a draw was also enough, so it was kind of yeah. one of these two that qualified directly for the World Cup and the other one uh, possibly for the playoffs. So we were all looking forward here in the Netherlands, like, yeah, let's uh, have a great match with a lot of supporters, which, yeah, apparently the, the last part didn't happen, but the first part did happen because they won the <laughs> game with 2-0 and, uh, yeah, now they uh, are qualified for the World Cup next year. So. Um, directly, so that, that's also great.
1: Yeah, congratulations! Great. I can imagine I how, how passionate you all are there in the Netherlands about football. So this is this is big news. And speaking of the World Cup next year in Qatar, some amazing news on the sports technology front, Charles.
3: Yeah, I quite right recently I read an article um, about some more uh, innovations uh, and technical. Uh, 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 yeah, like experiments that the FIFA is um, um, currently um, experimenting with. So mm. I think if you look back at the last few years and, and then especially the technology part uh, during football matches, during international football matches, um, yeah, we have had the uh, like the, the line technology, um, if, if it, it should be a goal or not, if football is uh, um, in the goal or yeah. not. So that was one of the first things. And that was uh, uh, introduced like years ago. and then mm. um, after that we all know we we, we, we um, got the the, VAR, the the video referee. and yeah. in the beginning, I think there there was quite a lot of discussion about that role but now uh, I do think it's mm. it's accepted all over the world uh, and playing an important role as well and um, at least here in the Netherlands at the moment they, we are also looking at uh, showing, the um, the work of the VAR, like if there, if the referee is calling the VAR and they are discussing, uh, um, yeah, if they should agree with the call of the referee or not, um mm. if if it's possible to show that in the stadium, um, to yeah, to to get the supporters more engaged, um, yeah, so that's also one of the things that's, that's coming, but that's not directly related to the World Cup because yeah, the, the thing you're referring to for the World Cup. Um, which is, I do think, quite re- revolutionary as well is a robot blindsman. Um,
1: Amazing.
3: Yeah, it is. And, and the, I think offside is always a big point for discussion. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it can be f- very narrow, like a few millimeters even. Um, yeah, I think yeah. we also all do remember the, the, the last goal of MAP during the, uh, the, uh, the Nation mm. League final over here. Um, there was a lot of discussion uh, if it was offside or on-site. Um, mm. So it, it's it mainly humans, um, but currently um, they also using like the VAR and line technology, um, but the next step is uh, changing the technology. So by using the, the robot linesmen, and then they are um, implementing like skeletal modeling. So yeah. um, if if you look at uh, a human body, they are taking like 29 um, positions um, of, of of the humans, and yeah. they are applying some algorithms, algorithms to yeah, to see if, if it's offside or not, and that's quite precise, uh, preciseer than the, 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 the var and the lines that are currently used, like the camera positions. Um, yeah. and yeah, they have done some experiments um, in England. Uh, mm-hmm. in the Premier League and, and some more experiments are coming on uh, in the coming months and there should also be kind of a law change because it's, uh, it's quite a revolutionary and, and they're discussing about that mm-hmm. but yeah I'm curious if, if it's really going on uh, next year in Qatar uh, if the FIFA uh, yeah really believes in it and, and get the law uh, organized as well and, and there, yeah of course the there will still be a human lineman that's doing the work, but the robot lineman will, will help the human by, by giving um, um, some calls if, if it's uh, offside then uh, by using these algorithms. winners.
1: It's just incredible because, like, literally, the World Cup in Qatar starts in just about 12 months from today. And the fact that, as you say, such a contentious point of football, of the world game, is the offside calls. And the fact that, you know, there's always contention with human error, etc. But as you say, to bring in, you know, robot linesmen, to bring in this technology to make the calls and to help inform the situation. And as you were saying, 29 points on the body. So they've literally got each player on the field has got a, a, a 29 points per player. And assessing all of that to work out where the, the position of the player is relative to the ball, etc. And... um. I love the fact that it's, as you were saying, more accurate than, you know, a video uh, because obviously with the video, it goes per frame, frames per second. With these, it's accurate to within four centimeters and that is more accurate than, than you know, a moving picture. Um, amazing. I, I saw that they're doing a trial, like they've been doing a number of trials. They're going to have a live test uh, in February with uh, Chelsea playing in the, in the Club World Cup. If it gets through there, then it will get to the World Cup itself in a year's time. Do you think it will, Chelsea? Do you reckon it's gonna pass this final hurdle? Like because all the testing at the minute's been non live. I mean you're someone that's lived and breathed to football for so long. Do you feel that under a live environment it this technology will still hold up strong?
3: Um, yeah. I do think um, it, it should also take some time, like I said, uh, regarding the, the the VAR, the video referen, referee. Mm. Um, but that's also uh, human involvement. So of course they're using cameras then for the for the VAR, but the, the final decision is made by by a human. And in this case, yeah. it's it's yeah, like the, the it's it might sound a little bit like yeah. Strange, out of the box, like a robot what is a robot doing here on the pitch but it's more like <laughs> the the algorithm and the, all the all the positions that, that are being used and mm. yeah the, the the game is is developing um a lot so the the, the, the speed is, is, is even going um yeah like it, it's, it's going so fast the the, the the ball possession of a team and it, it's hard for a human to to see everything and and to, to make these important yeah. decisions so it might also give alignment more confidence like if the lineman is thinking like, yeah, it's offside, but it's very narrow. And also they get a signal from, from like the technology that it definitely is. And the, I, I think it 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 can really help by making the, the game. Um, so people really believe the lineman. Um, yeah. And of course, it should be, they should trust it and they should prove during this uh, trial at the uh, World Cup for Clubs um, that it really, uh, shows the correct results <laughs> because on the, yeah. the, on the other hand um, that's also the case if you look at changes or new technology if maybe mm. there's only one situation that the decision has made that's made by the robot is like a yeah, very bad decision and not talking about mm. like centimeters but maybe yeah it's it's kind of easy to see that that it was off site and the, the the robot lineman is saying it was on site if, that hap- if that's yeah. happening once i think the the confidence of the supporters is, is also directly gone, and, and also for the FIFA. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, it should work, and it it should, should take some time to to uh, to get the position, and, and the supporters are trusting it. But personally, I believe um, it's a good addition of the uh, the human alignment.
1: Fascinating. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, Chelsea, thanks heaps for your time. Another magnificent update all the way there from the Netherlands, where we're sending Godspeed to you all. And hopefully things are back on track ASAP. Thanks heaps for your time,
3: Chelsea.
1: Bye. Uh, my pleasure to welcome now to the show from 3KD Indigenous Radio, Hayley McAdam. Welcome aboard, Hales. Hello,
5: hello. Thank you. It's good to be back.
1: Oh, great to have you on. Of course, Hayley McAdam is the star of uh, 3KND Indigenous Radio every Tuesday morning between 11 and midday on track with Hayley McAdam. And then on a Friday night, turned up with Hayley Mack, get the party started right for the weekend from 10pm through to midnight uh, featuring all the great Indigenous artists. And Hayley, uh, on your show Just Gone last Friday, you had Stan Walker, big interview with him. What an absolute superstar
5: oh look absolutely i mean he's he's such an amazing person and the things that he's gone through um is pretty uh inspiring and he's an indigenous man himself just Mm. from uh new zealand maori fella but no Mm. he's it was such a great interview and to have him on the program it was great and i love his music is his voice is incredible
1: he does, he's got, it's very ethereal, like it's just a very uh, uplifting, and you know, I remember a song he and Jess Malboy did, A Galaxy, which came out, I was, oh, you know, sort of seven, eight years ago, but, oh, I still listen to it, it's just a beautiful song, very, Any anyone out there, if you're having a bad day, put Galaxy on, Jess Malboy, beautiful voice, Stan Walker, beautiful, together, oh, magic. <laughs>
5: Yeah, Mm. it definitely
1: is. Uh, And you were actually saying before we started, there's another good one, hey? Uh, Stan Walker and Isaiah Firebrace.
5: What's that one again, Hales? Yeah, so they did a cover of Crowded House, Don't Dream It's Over. And it's got three languages in there. And um, it's just, it's amazing. I, I don't think I can explain it and do it justice. You just have to listen to it. But um, oh, it's amazing. You'll get goosebumps. Yeah, their voices are incredible.
1: Yeah, bloody. Uh, well, Stan Walker, Isaiah, Firebrace, Don't Dream It's Over check it out on uh, I just found the video on YouTube actually so I'm going to listen to this after after we're done hey uh, also you had last weekend the one before that you had a huge event uh, 3KD Indigenous Radio uh, massive nomination for the Melbourne Awards you all uh, got dressed up and went to the Melbourne Town Hall huge awards night and I saw the post from our man G man saying how much love uh, the whole joint gave to you at 3KD which is a beautiful thing
5: yeah absolutely just to be nominated is incredible uh with one of the community indigenous awards Mm. and we didn't win but you know just being nominated was enough for us because the melbourne awards i mean that's pretty big you know hosted by the city of melbourne so um to be acknowledged in that is is just amazing and the panel that judged us Mm. was all indigenous or aboriginal elders and people so um yeah it it was it definitely meant a lot to be there
1: Yeah, I bet it did Well, you're on a roll because you, of course, are also nominated uh, for the 2021 Radio Awards Best New Talent and also a special contribution for your broadcast journalism part of Turned Up where you're bringing, you know, some magnificent journalism, uh, you know, which is hard to do When you're writing journalism, easier, doing it on the radio, harder So the fact that, you know, you're getting these sort of plaudits is a big deal Hey, so who are we talking about this week? Which uh, Indigenous athlete are we profiling?
5: Yes, so today I have the amazing Yvonne gulagong Crawley. so I'm excited to talk about her. She's a Wiradjuri woman, Mm -hmm. uh, born on the 31st of July, 1951 in Griffith, New South Wales. Mm -hmm. But she's a former world number one tennis player and crazy, you know, talented her achievements uh so so long i mean i could sit here for hours and talk about her um (laughs) her achievements some of them though in her tennis career she was ranked the number one player in the world in 1971 and 1976. Mm. she's won 92 pro tournaments was a finalist in 18 grand slam single events Winning uh, at Wimbledon twice, Mm -hmm. the Australian Open four times, the French Open, and was uh, runner up for four years Mm -hmm. in succession at the US Open. Mm -hmm. She's also won seven Grand Slam double titles, and in 1980, she became the first mother to win. Since 1914, which was yeah, crazy. So she's represented Australia seven times in the Fed Cup, winning in 71. Um, And she was also the captain from 2002 until 2004. Mm. um, which is, yeah, crazy. She's been awarded Australian of the Year back in 71 and Australian Sportsman uh, of the Year in 72. And Queen Elizabeth uh, the Second appointed her as a member of the Order of the British Empire in Jeez. 82. So, um, yeah, she was made an official of the Order of Australia, which mm. is just incredible. But what I really love is that... Um, she has run the gulagong national development camp for mm-hmm. indigenous girls and boys so she, you know she uses tennis and obviously sports but mainly focusing on tennis as mm-hmm. a vehicle to promote better health education and employment within the indigenous uh, communities so the program was actually awarded school scholarships which was yeah, right. by uh, university scholars <laughs> tennis players coaches and yeah. um, Yeah, sports administrators. So, um, but yeah, she's achieved a lot and, you know, obviously using that as a tool to help the younger generation, which is very inspiring.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As you say, like, you know, she's achieved so much in her own lifetime, but then to be able to use that platform to then help other generations, you know, everyone coming through is a big deal. Um, I saw, so she won her first French Open. She's only 19 years old. Like 19. Yeah, 19. What the,
5: <laughs> like, what the?
1: That's amazing. It, like, at 19, I'd done nothing. I barely get out of bed at 19. She's winning a French Open. What the? That's amazing. Ugh.
5: Yeah, that's crazy. I'm like 19. Oh my goodness. That was like for me two years ago. <laughs> yeah,
1: and... I You're still young. <laughs> You're lucky. Yeah.
5: <laughs> but yeah. I'm You've like, still well, got
1: time. Do you play tennis?
5: Well,. Look, I've always wanted to. I just never really got the chance um never got had the opportunity or mm-hmm. never really found a club in my area but yeah. i've I've always wanted to though and everyone always tells me oh you'd be good at tennis yeah. and i'm like yeah i'd be good at anything though <laughs>
1: yeah, that's it that's the right attitude oh we'll have to go for a hit one time well i tell yeah. you and the, and the australian open is on you know obviously in melbourne it is the atmosphere there is just sensational at melbourne park so um and the other thing Aisha, i noticed her winning record 81 percent so 81 percent of the time she walked on the court she won like that's a Amazing record, isn't it? Eighty-one percent,
5: like yeah, that's crazy.
1: Oh, uh, bloody amazing! Um, and as you mentioned, you know her charity. Um, so you can go to foundation dot org dot au, or if you just put it in Google, it'll come straight up, and it has all the details. And and I like also Haley her her motto: dream, believe, learn, achieve. Um, and that's her life motto. Now it's it's been adopted by her foundation: dream, believe, learn, and achieve sums up pretty much the recipe for life it? that's pretty cool it
5: does for sure and you know the work that they do like i said for indigenous youth which is um yeah. very important stuff you know unfortunately a lot of indigenous um specifically aboriginal youth you know have to go through a lot and have to experience a lot and are exposed to that from a very young age so um yeah to have role models like that and that foundation and yeah it's it's really important and not a lot of people do that you know yeah. are wanting to help the younger generation and and see them succeed
1: totally well that's the and and sport and music they're both powerful things aren't they to to you know to help in that regard you know sport and music bring people together and get their creativity flowing and you know tap into that and Um, Of course, you know, that's the thing. We talk about our sports in this segment and then you play all the music on 3KND, 1503am if you're in Melbourne, 3knd.org.au, online anytime, and of course on digital radio right around the world. Uh, Every Friday night, check it out. Stan Walker was last week. I can't wait to see who you got on the show coming up this week. Uh, Every Friday night between 10pm and midnight, Eastern Daylight Savings Time in Australia. Hayley McAdam, thank you again.
5: Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to a close
1: for another week. Thank you very much for your company here on Sports Cutting Edge. Catch you next week.
0: You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump
5: online at astn.com.au.